This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. This is Walpola Rahulen, What the Buddha Taught. The question of free will has occupied an important place in Western thought and philosophy. But according to the twelvefold chain of dependent origination, this question does not and cannot arise in Buddhist philosophy. If the whole existence is relative, if the whole of existence is relative, conditioned, and interdependent, how can will alone be free? Will, like any other thought, is conditioned. So is freedom in this context. Such a conditioned and relative free will is not denied, but not only is so-called free will not free, even the very idea of free will is not free from conditions. So this uh, subject came up uh, recently during one of uh, our Buddhist study sessions that I was doing with a month-long residence, and um, we had a good uh, conversation about it. And it stayed with me, and so I just wanted to um, explore it a little more. Since we've had reasons, probably, you know, human beings, we've been trying to explain what we are and why things happen the way that they do. And, you know, this is simplifying a little bit, but in general terms, we have that everything is causally determined, and um, in its kind of extreme forms, that's determinism in an extreme form that it goes all the way back in a chain that goes all the way back to the beginning of the universe, meaning everything is already written down in a sense. And this does not admit of um, randomness or acts of choice, that it's, that it's really an illusion that we have choice. And then on the other hand, we have free will, being the, having the, the, the ability to actually choose our actions. And to me, and this is an interesting question, not just philosophically, but um, because it has implications, of course, for, for our lives, because we act based on what we know, and perhaps more importantly, on what we believe, often unconsciously. And so if I believe that there is an omniscient creator who has a plan for my life, or that there's just, in a sense, in the universe, in the design of the universe, it's a kind of a book of ages in which everything has been written down, then if I encounter misfortune, I may be comforted by this belief. It was fated to be so, especially if I feel that it was God's will but it could also allow me to become passive. And, and fatalism, which is um, really the theory that uh, human beings are not um, able to act other than we do. And this, this, this line going all the way back you know, to the beginning of the universe, uh, Cicero said that it's actually like a coiled rope that is just slowly being uncoiled. So there's nothing new it is simply 
um, something is revealed which was always there. But so, as, as I said, you know, it, it, um, in, its, in its negative form, I could believe that it's my lot to be in an abusive marriage, for example, or in a job that I do not enjoy, that I don't uh, benefit from. You know, maybe somehow I, I deserved it. Or it was, in, it was in the cards, we say. Or, you know, we can believe that that is, in a sense, a kind of natural law, that there are people who are meant to, to dominate, to rule over others, because it's, it's their destiny to do so. And, you know, the sense, I was just reflecting on the sense of um, that we can't act in any other way that, that we do, in a sense that would, that would mean that then our, our aggression or our um, times of, of blindness, our self, sense of self-interest are inherent then to us, inherent to the human condition, and that really all we can do is manage them, do the best that we can. On the other hand, with free will, we could believe that then given a a, a range of choices, we should be equally capable of of choosing among them, and and that each one is just as as probable as any other. There really is no impediment to our choice. So in its negative form, that could be, you know, if if you... come to this country, for example, you know, pursuing the American dream, and you fail after much work to achieve it, it's, it was really because you didn't try hard enough. This, or this sense of, of exceptionalism, which is really just a kind of a, a collective sense of self-importance. And so this sense of choice, of course, gives us um, a sense of power and responsibility. And it was why uh, the, some of the Greek philosophers introduced the idea of free will, because without it, you could feel absolved from moral responsibility. And then there's, there's uh, theories that actually try to, to bring the two together, try to uh, integrate both views. But there's actually, there's even a, a theory, and actually, um, surprisingly to me, but maybe it's not so surprising, that's quite popular that um, in, in scientific circles that we may actually be a simulation um, created by higher beings. And they actually had a conference at Harvard a couple of years ago where a panel of, of scientists was discussing this possibility. And, you know, one of the um, proofs that, that they gave for this is that the universe seems to, as far as we can tell, run on mathematical laws. So it's completely possible, they say, that, that it could have been programmed by someone. So we're, we're, we would be right now in the matrix. <laughs> And um, one of the, the physicists said, well, this opens up questions about eternal 
life and rebirth, even apart from any belief in a, in a higher um, being, in a, in a god, because you can just reboot the program. And um, interestingly, though this I think perhaps not so surprisingly, opinions were ranged loosely but, but largely along gender lines. So the male scientists really like this theory. <laughs> A lot of them. The women, not so much. <laughs> and there was one uh, theoretical physicist, Linda Randall, that said, you know, we're really just thinking about ourselves as usual. Why do we assume that there's all these higher beings out there in the universe who want to spend their time simulating us? <laughs> Why do we? I mean, don't they have anything better to do? But if we are a 14-year-old's uh, aliens video game, <laughs> it would explain a lot. <laughs> but it's been refuted recently, this, this theory, partly because we have a sense of free will, which frankly seems kind of flimsy evidence to me, but also because there's, there's quantum events in the mind that don't fit into the classical laws of, of cause and effect. But, but one of the, the scientists were saying it will actually be harder to prove, it is harder to prove that the universe is real than it is uh, a simulation. And I thought, well, that could just be part of the program, right? You know, let's just throw a little bit of quantum physics just to confuse them. And, you know, the thing is, ultimately, of course, we still have to deal with ourselves. We still have to play the game. And then what about God's will? You know, I was born... Um, is that accurate to say that I was born Catholic? I was not born Catholic. I was born and then I became Catholic, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, and, you know, thy will be, thy will be done. And it's, uh, I've said it many, many, many times in my life. And I was reading uh, Evelyn Underhill recently speaking about the spiritual life. And she says that, she spoke of it very nicely. She said, it, the spiritual life really requires a surrender, a surrender to this vast design of the universe of God, instead of running a pokey little business on your own. And, um, and I th- Myself, think how many times I have um, invoke, invoked this sense of, of God's will over my own to, um, to direct my actions, uh, to have what drives my actions be something larger than just my own self-interest. But, you know, God is said to be omniscient and omnipresent and um, omnipotent. And so does that really mean that his will is done all the time, you know, at, at every time and in every circumstance? And I remember the first time uh, I had a sense of this. I was about three, I think, and I was in the car with my mother. We were going to the supermarket. And I was in the back seat, and I was eating a ham and cheese sandwich. And I don't know how the subject came up, but I asked her, is it true that God is everywhere? And she said, yes. 
And I said, no, but really, like everywhere, everywhere. And she said, yes, God is everywhere. And I looked at my sandwich, and I looked at her, and I said, well, is he in this sandwich too? And she said, yes. And then I couldn't eat the sandwich. It just felt disrespectful. And she had to explain to me that eating the sandwich was also was also God, and that there was a way, in a sense, to do it, honoring God. But are, are these uh, decisions, um, again, does it, does it involve everything? I mean, is God really concerned with my choice of breakfast, you know, or, or uh, my preferences? Is he responsible for my dislike of garlic, my love of eggplant? And, and I don't mean this uh, sarcastically you know, or, or facetiously. It's, um, you know, I do believe in, in God, and I want to understand, you know, how is this all put together? Is it really that it's just the, the high-level decisions, if you will? But then is really my will different, different from God's? Now, if you don't believe in God, then you don't have to worry about it. But... Um, I think all of us can perhaps recognize um, that there are times, there are things that happen, and I would even say things that we do that, as Roshi said so beautifully the other day, are not our doing. And so whose doing are they? Is that the right way to ask the question? So what really drives my actions? How do I choose how to act? Do I choose? And now Buddhism has uh, its own view. And the key is in, in Rahula's qualifier. He says, you know, there is free will. It's just that it's conditioned and it's relative. So it cannot stand outside of causes and conditions. Right? outside of interdependence. So is it really free or not? He says it isn't, that it's not really free. Not only is so-called free will not free, even the very idea of free will is not free from conditions. And maybe it's how we understand that word free. Because we do, I think, especially in, from a Western perspective, we want free to really mean free. But I really do have the, the ability to choose equally, all things considered, that I have that freedom. But interestingly, even some of the Western philosophers said that free is not meant to modify will. John Locke said that free is actually modifying mind. And he said, I think the question is not proper whether the will be free, but whether a person be free, which I think fits very nicely with the teachings of Buddhism. Is, it, is, is the person free? So the Buddha spoke of, of karma as volitional action. And action that is not willed does not produce karma. And so if an apple falls you know, from a tree... It doesn't, that doesn't create an effect unless it falls on Newton's head and then you know, it's another, another story. But 
in general, we, we speak of karma loosely. And Rahula talks about this. You know, he says it applies to the action, not to its effect. So we sometimes say, oh, you know, that's bad karma, almost as if it was luck. And he's saying, you know, karma is the, the, the action itself, and the result, it's called its fruit. And it may ripen in this lifetime, or in the next, or many lifetimes from now. We may never see, we may never experience the fruit of a particular action. And further, it doesn't move in a straight line. It, it has kind of uh, multiple feedback loops. So uh, the, the present is shaped both by the past and the present. The future is, is shaped by the present. So present actions shape the present, again, and the future. But present actions need not be determined by the past. Right? So, so Sayan was, was talking the other day that karma is a natural law and that it will always ripen. And that is true. You cannot avoid the ripening of karma, but it is not inflexible. And I think that's, that's also key. And so the Buddha says this. If one says that in whatever way a person performs a karmic action, in that very same way they will experience the result, in that case there will be no possibility for a religious life and no opportunity would appear for the complete ending of suffering. But if one says that a person who performs a karmic action with a result that can be experienced in various ways will reap its results accordingly, in that case there will be a possibility for a religious life and an opportunity for making a complete end of suffering. So an angry thought will most likely will probably lead to another angry thought unless I choose to respond to that thought differently and therefore transform it. It won't be easy, but it's possible. So, so one thought moment conditions the next. And so if I'm used to, if that's my, my tendency is to feed angry thoughts, there is a kind of, you could say, a kind of momentum, like the probability that the next thought will be also a thought of anger increases. But if at any point I enlighten that thought, I I shine a light on what is there, I see that anger, then I may be able to shift, to respond with a with the next thought moment not continuing that anger. Therefore freeing what is bound. And so we don't ignore the causes and conditions, and we also don't abandon our own sense of volition. They work together, dependent on one another. And therefore we do very much have responsibility for our actions. And at the same time, we cannot extricate ourselves from our causes and conditions. You know, I was saying to the residents, I can't just will myself to be a brilliant mathematician. I may try. You know, I could work really hard. That may not, karma, that karma may not bear its fruit in this life because those were not the conditions of my life. 
So if we were stuck in, in fixed patterns, practice wouldn't be possible. Realization wouldn't be possible. We would just stay deluded forever. And so we could say that a person who is free is using their body, is using their mind to change that thought pattern and to realize its nature. And the mind, because it is so powerful, is completely capable of that change, of such change. Sometimes, sometime last year, I was speaking with my father, who had been a smoker all his life, heavy, heavy smoker. He had quit once before, many years ago. And then he had started back up again, and he'd been smoking for a long time. And he got pneumonia, and his doctor said, you can't keep doing this. You really have to stop. And so when I talked to him, he had. He had stopped. He, he, I think he hadn't been smoking for a month or two. And I said, well, did you use a patch or anything? And he said, no, I really I didn't want to do that. I said, so you just stopped? And he said, yeah. I said, how's it going? He said, fine. He says, I, I am eating more, but, you know, it's okay. I said, well, wasn't it hard? And he said, yeah, but you just set your mind to it and you just do it. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's where I get my willfulness from. <laughs> I come by it honestly. But what if you can't? What if you can't just do it? What if you can't let go of a thought? You want to. You can't let go of a feeling. Russia was speaking of this. What if you can't just do it? Then you turn to it. You practice it to the extent that you can. And you do that again and again and again. And if you can't do it alone, you arrange your circumstances to support you. I was talking to someone last week in Buffalo who was just speaking about you know, difficulty. He has, he has a demanding job, which he very much enjoys, but it takes everything from him. Um, and you know, he says when he gets home, he's so exhausted that really all he can do, all he wants to do is just have a few drinks and just sit in front of the computer for a couple of hours. And he said, it doesn't feel good. He said, I don't want to do that, but part of me can't do anything else. And I said to him, so make what's easy difficult. Change your circumstances so that it's difficult for you to drink. You know, get rid of, of the alcohol in your house. Make it difficult for, for you to just come in and plop yourself down in front of the television or, or the computer. He lives with someone. I say, you know, arrange to go for a walk or join a gym. Do something with another person where now you're, in a sense, accountable to them also. Because on your own, you will be tired. You just will do what is easy. And so slowly, by shifting, you know, a thought moment in order to shift the next, eventually, and eventually could be years, if the thought stream runs deep enough, eventually what is difficult becomes easy. At the very least, in the beginning, it becomes doable, manageable. It becomes less binding. And I was thinking how just the other day, I actually felt it very physically in, in, in my body. Um, 
you know, were, part of me wanted to be annoyed, and part of me didn't. Part of me thought, I, I don't want to put my energy on this. And I actually saw the image and felt it in my body as a, as a kind of skidding over ice or, or wheels spinning. I could, part of me wanted to hold on, but there was nothing for it to hold on to. It just didn't have traction. I would have had to make more of an effort with this particular thing to hold on than to let go, which has not always been the case. So in that, for that particular level of annoyance, it was easy. It was easier to not hold on. And our thoughts are very powerful. Our stories are very powerful. That's why we work to lay them to rest during zazen. You know, and so often they're just they're a protection from what we don't want to see. Or or they we can use them as a as a cop out. You know, someone said to me, you know, my ignorance is complete. And I said, Well, so is your wisdom. You just have to realize it and manifest it. And it you know, often it doesn't, it doesn't um, bother us or surprise us that our stories very often are, are f- based on very flimsy evidence or just in, in assumptions that we've just kind of thrown together, not really examined very much. That's why belief is so, is so powerful and I think is so operating right now, just in our, in our society. If it sounds good... If enough people believe it, if it fits my purpose, I'll go for it. doesn't matter if it's not based on anything remotely related to the truth. And in one sense, it's what's so great about stories. What I love about stories is really, we really can create anything. And I've, I've told a story before of... Um, a young girl, maybe four or five years old, she's in kindergarten, and a teacher notices that she's very um, absorbed. She's been drawing for over an hour, and everybody else is doing their thing. And so the teacher finally goes up to her and says, Lucy, what are you doing? And the girl says, well, I'm drawing God. And the teacher says, but nobody knows what God looks like. And Lucy, without even looking up, she says, well, they will in a minute. (laughs) We need girls with that kind of confidence. <laughs> and it reminded me, somebody told me that in the, uh, one of the women's marches last week, there was a girl, about five years old, that had a sign that said, don't fashion me into a maiden who needs to be saved from a dragon. I am the dragon, and I will eat you whole. <laughs> Ladies, take note. <laughs> And so we can create something that is powerful or beautiful or wondrous. But also we can dig ourselves into all kinds of holes. As we know, we know we've, we've been sitting session. We know the stories that we can spin. And it really doesn't take very much. Years ago, my, my aunt was in a hotel with her then partner, and the room was a mess. You know, they had clothes were all over the place, and they had gifts they had bought. They had them out, and there was cartons of food. It was, it was messy. And they just went downstairs to have a leisurely breakfast, and they came back up, and the room had been tidied, and there was a note on the bedside table that said, 
we cleaned your disgusting room. <laughs> and my aunt flew into a rage. The note was in Spanish. And this is what she read. And she flew into a rage, told her partner, who also flew into a rage. So the two of them go down to the reception just like tornadoes. And he has a very, he had, he, he passed away. He had a very large, booming voice. And so everybody within a mile could hear him. And they're like, how dare you speak to us in this way? We're going to report you to the Chamber of Commerce. Who do you think you are? I mean, they're making a whole ruckus. So the manager gets called in, and he picks up the note, and bless him, he just very mildly, he reads it, and he looks at her, at my aunt, and says, ma'am, the note says we, we did the cleaning in your room. And my aunt just goes, oops. Aseo means cleaning. Asco means disgusting. So she uh, mistook an E for a C and created an entire world out of it. She was so embarrassed. They like packed up their stuff and snuck out. They never went back to that hotel ever again. And, and she talks about how in that moment, it was, it was completely real. They, they, she was being not just offended, I mean, in, insulted. And I think... Frankly, there was that part of her that, I mean, the room was pretty messy. And there was this part of her that just um, gave it to somebody else. Gave her discomfort to someone else. But the opposite is, is also true. So we create a, an environment, we use language in a way that is, that is positive, that is, that is affirming, create a particular kind of karma, and the results can be surprising. I came across this experiment, Ellen Langer, who's at Harvard, and she's a very well-known social psychologist who's basically dedicated her life to studying mindfulness and just its effects on our lives. And she did this experiment in 1979, which she called counterclockwise, and she took um, a small group of men, 78, 79-year-old men, and took them to a retreat center that had been retrofitted to look like 1959. And she asked them to live, I think it was for a week, to live here in that space as if they too were living in 1959 and were 20 years younger. And so, you know, they, they're hobbling out of this van. Some of them have canes. They're stooped. And she said, nobody's going to help you. They had to hold their bags in. They had to get themselves settled. And the whole place, the decor, the photographs, the music, television programs, everything was 1959. There were no mirrors in the, in the place, but there were photographs of all the men as their younger selves. And they were instructed to speak of um, 1959 as the present, so things that had happened then, as if it was happening in that moment. By the end, they were playing touch football together. <laughs> and they looked and felt younger than they ever had. And she admits, you know, it's a very small group. It's a very controlled environment. But what does it say about the power of our perceptions to change our experience. You know, I'm, I'm always, almost always cold 
in the zendo. But if I look at the thermostat, I'm colder. And so I don't look at it. Because <laughs> I also get offended at how low the temperature is for me. <laughs> so I don't look at it anymore. <laughs> and she did another experiment where she took, this time it was a bunch, a group of um, cleaning women. And she said, think of your job. To a group of them, she said, think of your, just, just your job. Just do your job. And to the other group, she said, think of it as exercise. And she didn't mean do it as exercise. They weren't like doing push-ups and, you know, abs between cleaning the toilet. She said, do your job as exercise because you're very uh, active. You're more active than most people are all day. And the ones who did their job as exercise lost weight. Maybe we should try that with Zazen. <laughs> I mean, it is demanding, you know. And we could say, well, isn't this just positive thinking? Isn't this just a kind of a, a subtle form of brainwashing? I mean, it's good. You could say it's, it's beneficial you know, for them, but isn't it still brainwashing? <coughs> and so for, for us, you know, from a partic- practitioner's perspective... It is not enough, you know, just to uh, manipulate your perception because you can do that, and you can do that with drugs. But to really understand that interdependence. So Rahula, when he was, uh, he was, he referred to the the twelvefold chain of of dependent uh, origination, and he says you can encapsulate it. In, in this formula, you know, when this is, that is. When this arises, that arises. When this is not, that is not. This ceasing, that ceases. And the Buddha said that when you look closely, and, and these 12 links are really what makes up existence and what keeps it going. And he said when you look closely, what you see is there is no agent behind these links, there is just the conditionality itself, that movement, you could say. And so, to me, that is why you know, replacing a skillful, an unskillful thought with a skillful one isn't just positive thinking, because we're practicing, we're also studying, hopefully realizing that interconnectedness we're seeing that there is nothing about ourselves, our experience, that is fixed, that is immutable. And we're seeing, hopefully, in all things, the three marks of existence. Suffering, or unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and selflessness. And one of the, I saw one of our, our students who uh, teaches at Buffalo, taught, she's retired now, Buffalo University, and she teaches... Um, religious studies and Buddhism. And she said she would always teach these three to her, to her students. So um, unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and selflessness. And she said she would teach them as life sucks, nothing lasts, get over yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and she followed that statement with saying to me, but you know, uh, she's, she has a life-threatening illness. And she said, when you realize that there is no future, there is no next. This moment all of a sudden becomes very important. 
And this teaching of the um, of interdependent origination was developed and really kind of took its pinnacle form in the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra. And I spoke a little bit about it in my last talk, but it was it it arose about five hundred years um, after the death of the Buddha, and it's said to it's it's thought that it was written in stages. Uh, that, that there's books that then got put together. And it's also the first, it, it's said to be the first teaching that, that he offered while he was still in samadhi after his enlightenment, but no one understood it. And so he kind of dialed it back and started uh, more simply with the Four Noble Truths. And it's also the, the, the origin of this metaphor of the uh, jeweled net of Indra, and Dushun, who's the first ancestor of the Huayan school that is based on these teachings, um, describes it like this. The manner in which all dharmas interpenetrate is like an imperial net of celestial jewels extending in all directions infinitely, without limit. Because of the clarity of the jewels, they are all reflected in and enter into each other. Within each jewel, simultaneously, is reflected the whole net, None of the other jewels interfere with this reflection. When one sits within one jewel, one is simultaneously sitting in all the infinite jewels in all the ten directions. How is this so? Because within each jewel are present all jewels. Really the first description of a holographic universe, that every bit of information contains the totality. And here is one you know, net of celestial jewels. And so as, as we sit, we sit within ourselves. We're also sitting very much within and in one another. While there's universes arising and vanishing within our body and mind, within a moment of zazen, within a moment of our lives. And the fact that none of the jewels can interfere with this reflection I think is important. So that means that even if we're in excruciating pain, if we're falling asleep, if we're just not interested in zazen in that moment, we still do not interfere with the reflection of this wondrous net. We cannot get in its way. We cannot obstruct it. And so then how do we choose to act? Carefully with the awareness that what I, what I do here in my little corner of the universe, which is actually not so little, affects not just me, but it does affect the whole net. And as I said, in a way that most likely we will not be able to see, to perceive. And yet, it's true. I had a yoga teacher who would, would say to the class in, in, in the middle of a very difficult pose, would be holding it for a long time, and she would say, do you know where this body begins? Do you know where it ends? And then she would wait a couple of beats, and she would say, find out. Find out what this body is. Find out what this mind is. That is exactly what we are here to do. And to learn how to use them well. 
not just for ourselves, but for everyone. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.